0: If you will open with me in your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter two. First Peter chapter two. continue making our way through the book of First Peter, we are picking up in chapter 2, we're going to read this morning together from verse 1 down to verse 5. Peter writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord. Father, it is a high calling that we receive in Christ. We are not only sinners who have been saved. We are not only saints, but as we read here, we are a spiritual house, a temple and a priesthood. It was a great honor for those who served in the priesthood to be able to to enter into the tabernacle and temple and to serve and minister before you and to to guard it from any of those who were not permitted to enter. And now we have an, an even greater privilege being a part of the priesthood that is linked not to the tribe of Levi, but the order of Melchizedek, the the priesthood of Christ. And this comes with responsibilities. This this comes with a calling. This comes with a way in which we are to conduct ourselves in the world and a way in which we are to to live and love towards one another. So Father, I pray for our time this morning as we consider Your Word, as we heed the instructions from the Apostle Peter, that we would take this high calling and, and conform our lives to it and conduct ourselves in the world in a way that would bring the priesthood of Christ's glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. The philosopher Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, characterized the modern person as one who has an altogether inward focus. This is in contrast to how people in various societies in the past have viewed themselves. Taylor, again, as he examines modern men and our beliefs and our thoughts and our practices he finds something distinct in modern man that he's he's an altogether an, an inward focused person he called this this ideal this this inward focus he called it expressive individualism and with this individualism people are driven by and they find all of their meaning within themselves, within their feelings and their desires. Their desires define them, such that if they're not able to live out all of their desires, they have a kind of crisis of identity. Their feelings and desires are wrapped up into who they are. With all of its feelings and and desires... They're always shifting, always changing. That's how modern man views himself. And in many ways, this kind of radical individualism has taken root for quite some time, even within the modern church. Many people believe that they can live a genuinely faithful Christian life all on their own as an individual. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not members of a particular local church. You can certainly be a member of a, a local church and be trying to live and perhaps even believing that you can live the Christian life all alone without any actual accountability, without any shepherding or, or anything. It means when someone has sort of embraced this this idea, this way of life, it means that they have become their own authority. There's no need for Christian community. Again, no need for accountability. As long as they have the Bible, as long as they can read it on their own and have their own personal time with God, they, they convince themselves that they are just fine going at it alone. They don't need the Bible. They don't need the church. And many churches have facilitated this kind of mentality by their their own practices and the things that they teach. If a person comes forward at the end of a worship service and says, I'm a Christian and and I want to be baptized, for many churches there's no evaluation of those claims. There's no process where a pastor or even other members of the church counsels an individual and and examines them to see if they have actually believed the gospel of Christ, if they are believing in Jesus as He is revealed in Scripture, or if they're believing in another Jesus altogether. There's there's little to no evaluation. Many people would be shocked to hear that virtually right after the apostolic period of the church, so so very end of the first century and into the early century and all the way into the middle of the fourth century, the early church had a process that it at times could take upwards of a, of a year or longer of doctrinal instruction, and of catechesis before the church would admit anyone into the church in membership and, and through baptism and before they'd ever admit someone to the Lord's Supper. And while we might quibble with this being a bit extreme, with it being a bit too long. The point is that for the early church, the individual was not viewed as a kind of infallible authority whose claims must always be accepted without scrutiny. It was the individual who had to submit himself to the authority of the church. In other words, there was a, a strong. Understanding that the Christian life, that following Christ was indeed a community effort. It required the body. The vast majority of commands, in fact, that we are given in the New Testament are commands that can only be obeyed within the context of the community of the church. We saw one of these last week, of course, where writing to these. Christians who were a part of various churches spread out throughout Asia, Pontus, and Cappadocia, Galatia, right? He's, he's writing to these churches. They received this letter and, and read it almost as if it was the sermon for the day before the congregation. And, and what does he say to them? He, he says that you are to love one another from a pure heart. Now, now if I'm speaking within the context of a, a gathered people, you know who the one another is. It's not just random folks outside, though that's certainly always to be implied. We, we show love to everyone. But the one another right, is referring to a particular group of people. And so you can think of all of the different commands that we have in the New Testament where, where we're instructions on how we are to love one another and to be kind to, to one another. Those are the commands that can only be fulfilled can only be obeyed within the context of the church. You can think as well, the the end of the book of Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews instructs the the believers to obey their leaders and to submit to them as as those who are going to have to give an account. You you can only do that within the context of of a local church. So, Being a Christian is, is not just about getting saved. It's not just about what happens in initial conversion. It's not just about your own personal experience with the Lord. There is very much a sense in which we must ask the question, what are we to do after conversion? How are we to live once we have truly come to know the Lord? What am I called to do and what am I called to be once by the grace of God I have been born again? The passage that we're looking at today and really the rest of 1 Peter begins to answer that very question by in essence calling us to form a distinct Christian community. What happens after conversion is that we're called to to be a part of and to form this distinct, new, at the time especially, Christian community in the midst of a fallen world. There's a certain conduct that we should display towards those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. There's a certain way in which we are to relate to all human institutions. There's a way in which we are to order our families. We're not allowed to just sort of run our families however we please and however the world does it. We're given specific instructions. Family is to be like. There's a way in which we are called to respond to suffering. There's a way in which we are to relate to elders of a local church. We're given very specific instructions for the nature of this community and how we are to conduct ourselves in it. All of these matters are addressed throughout First Peter, and and all of them serve again to form a certain kind of community in the midst of an ungodly world and and in response to the sufferings that will come in light of the gospel. In our passage that we're considering this morning, Peter begins to lay the groundwork for this this new God-created community. Last week in verses 22-25, to 25, Peter described the reality of the new birth. He described our, our conversion. And how it was the result of God by means of the Word. Creating new life within us. And how in light of this new birth, we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Well now in what follows... We're going to begin begin to see how this brotherly love takes shape. It's not just a feeling, it's not just, a, feeling, it's, it's not just a, a desire that we express internally. It's not just a, a hashtag we tweet, you know, love all people, or whatever it may be. Right? It, there's actions that 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 are carried out and that permeate all of our lives. And the first thing that Peter tells the churches to do. He says that they are to long for pure spiritual milk. To long for pure spiritual milk—that's the, the summary statement for what we'll see in most of this passage. To long for pure spiritual milk. In verses one to three, this is the main command charge that we're given. If you're reading in the ESV, verse 1 would appear to be the main command. If you look at me there, it says, So put away all malice, all deceit, etc. That, that appears to be the, the first charge given. But in the original language, verse 1 is actually dependent on verse 2. King James actually tries to convey this a little bit better by translating these verses as, Wherefore, laying aside all malice, etc., desire the sincere milk of the Word. The point is that Peter is addressing these various churches scattered throughout Asia, and he says to all of them that you are to long for the pure spiritual Milk. This, of course, is a metaphor. A metaphor that needs some explanation. What does it mean? What is this milk that we are to crave? Some have argued that the milk is Peter's way of referring to the Word of God. That's how the King James conveys it as, as well. We are to desire the sincere milk of the Word. And one of the reasons for this interpretation is because, of course, Peter was speaking about the Word of God at the end of chapter 1 as the means by which God caused us to be born again. It's His, his instrument of bringing about the, the new life and regeneration. And furthermore, some have argued that the meaning of the word spiritual here should be understood as the Word, that you would translate it as such, even though it is an actually different word. than we usually find translated that way. And it's undoubtedly the case that the Word of God is something that we should long for, right? We don't, we don't read the Word, we don't hear the Word, and then believe and, and get converted and then leave the Word behind. We, we never leave it behind. We're always to long for it more and more. With Calvin, I think that this is too narrow of an idea, too narrow of an interpretation. For one thing, this longing for milk, you can see there, is connected to behaviors that you find in verse 1. In other words, as you are longing for this milk, as you crave this milk, like a, a newborn infant craves his mother's milk you are at the same time to be putting away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and and all slander. These are, of course, behaviors that have to do with how you relate to others. When you are deceitful, when you're malicious, you are, of course, actively working against the good of others. When you're hypocritical, you're condemning other people for committing and, and practicing the very same sins that, that you are presently committing. When you're envious, you have, of course, no joy over the, the various victories and, and triumphs or even the possessions of, of others. You, you hate people because of the various things that they have. And when you slander, you're using your tongue to spread false character assassinations against other people. All of these behaviors, they're they're social in nature. They're examples of how not to love your brothers from a pure heart. And longing for the pure milk that Peter speaks of here involves putting these behaviors away. It, It involves taking them off like a dirty pair of clothes and just... Throwing them away in the dumpster, never to be used again. Additionally, the the word for spiritual here is a, a different word from what we find in the original language in verses in, in verse five, where where Peter says there that we're to be built up as a or that we're being built up as a spiritual house. That we're offer we're to offer spiritual sacrifices. These are these are different words here. Word here in verse two has the idea of something being rational, uh, reasonable. It's something that comports with reality, that, that's true. It makes sense of the way things actually are. Uh, so that you could translate this actually as proper or appropriate. In other words, we're to long for the pure milk that is appropriate for who we are now as born-again believers. It's, It's appropriate to our nature as those who are newborn infants. In this sense, I think John Calvin has it right when he argues that the milk refers to the mode or the way of living which has, he says, the savor of the new birth when we surrender ourselves to be brought up by God. It is the the nourishment of God Himself by Christ that we receive as we pursue living in this new life that we've received from above and as we pursue this life together within the context of a body of other born-again believers or to use a, a doctrinal term to capture this, we, we might say that this refers to sanctification. The whole process. The whole life. By the grace of God. Band band of the grace of God. Band band growing, growing into Christ's likeness. Growing into holiness. It's a whole way of life that involves, of course, as foundational, the Word of God. Longing for the Word of God. It, it involves prayer, longing to be in communion with God through prayer. It involves obedience to His commands and repentance from sin. And of course, loving the brothers within the church. It's a way of life that presupposes that you first of all actually know the Lord. It presupposes that you come to Him, as Peter says in verse 4, it presupposes as he says in verse 3 that you you have already tasted and seen that the Lord is good it presupposes a genuine conversion it presupposes the new birth and by constantly craving for and longing for this pure and appropriate milk by pursuing sanctification by pursuing a whole life of godliness by throwing away all of those old behaviors that characterize life apart from Christ and by embracing Jesus by embracing his body and obedience to him peter says by pursuing this and longing for it you'll grow up into salvation you'll mature Christian life friends, does not end at conversion. It doesn't stop once you've first believed and received the Gospel. It, it just begins there. What follows conversion is a whole life of learning obedience. It's a whole life of learning to trust in God and in His promises. And, and it's a whole life of learning how to love properly. A lot of people have a a conception of Christianity as if it's just this sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card. You believe one time, and you you get your card, and and now you can live however you please. You don't need the Word. You, You don't need the body of Christ. You've got your ticket to heaven. You've believed. You've been baptized. Now you're good. Live however you please. Heaven forbid if another Christian or or if a pastor were to tell you that based on the outward fruit of your life, you are showing no indication at all of actually knowing the Lord. Who are you to judge? My salvation is between me and God. I am my own authority. assure you though, friends, that many of these same professing Christians who believe this way and who live this way would have found themselves excommunicated from the vast majority of churches for the first four centuries in a heartbeat. Because the early church took holiness seriously. They took the community of believers seriously. They understood that true Christianity involves a An all-of-life commitment. And Peter, here, is calling believers, he's calling these churches to this all-of-life kind of commitment. You are to crave this pure, nourishing milk of a godly way of life grounded in a hunger for God so that you will not remain stagnant so that you will not shrivel away in your indwelling sin, but so that you may, as he says, grow up and mature into salvation. That for a a period of of months and, and years and perhaps even decades, the end of your life looks far more godly than the beginning of your new life because you've been walking so long now with the Lord. You have the, as Calvin again says, the, the savor of the new birth. Perhaps you've perhaps you've been around people like that before. They've they've been walking for the with the Lord for, for many years. Their, their entire lives are saturated in prayer. They've probably got practically the whole Bible memorized. They genuinely love the Lord, and it's as if you're in the presence of someone who has one foot already in the kingdom of heaven and one foot on earth. This is what we are called to do. We are called to grow up into this salvation that we've received. Now, as the people of God pursue this way of life in the church, and as they practice loving one another by putting away all of these sinful behaviors in pursuit of holiness, God then begins to form within us and form within these groups of believers form within the church a a certain kind of people. This is what I want you to see next. Notice with me in verses 4 and 5. Peter says there, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. There is a, there's much that we could say just about these statements alone. But I want to draw your attention to two things in particular. The first is that Peter reminds us here of Christ's rejection as an encouragement to believers. As an encouragement to to persevere. Let's not forget, right? These these Christians that Peter is writing to are, are a group of believers scattered throughout Asia who are facing a lot of social ridicule and rejection. They're, they're being ostracized from society and from many of the, the communities that they've grown up in, that they, they work in, and that their families are a part of. They're being, they're being shunned. They're, they're now exiles in what used to be their own land. And so when Peter refers here to Christ as the, the living stone rejected by men, And then he compares believers to Christ by calling them likewise living stones. When he does this, he's encouraging them to continue in faithfulness because in the sight of God, Christ was chosen and precious. And so also are they. Even if the world rejects you, in the sight of God, you are healed. Chosen, beloved, and precious. It's a reminder that even though the world may look at us as strange and ignorant and perhaps even dangerous people with dangerous beliefs and dangerous practices, this is nothing to be ashamed of because in the eyes of God you are accepted. You're His. I want you to notice secondly, the images that Peter uses for the church. Notice the images here for the church. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That's that's quite the description. The church, the people of God, a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. There's a lot of people who have no good descriptions that they can give for church. The church is just made up of a bunch of hypocrites. It's a dying institution. It's intolerant. It's backward. It's behind the times. And Then there's some of the more conservative type who just lament that the church has become so sinful and corrupt that it's just irredeemable. There's no place for reform. It's really even hard to, to fathom what the reformers in the 16th century were, were even doing. The, the church was incredibly corrupt at that time. And yet they believe that it was worthy to be reformed. There there are many people who believe that the church even now has become so corrupted and so worldly that that it's just irredeemable. The only thing that we can do is to separate. And as individuals, we, we just live our own Christian lives. Again, we have our Bible. We read it. We pray to the Lord. We don't need the church. Peter, Peter has a much grander vision of the church. It is a spiritual house. It is a temple that is presently being constructed by God. And it's being constructed using the living stones of new people. New born again people. And these stones, of course, are are joined together, one to another. They're not scattered about. They're not pebbles that are just lying on the ground. The way some treat the church, you would think that their highest vision of the church is that it is nothing more than a, a pile of rubble, disjointed pebbles that have no connection to each other. The church isn't rubble. It's not a pile of stones. It is a house with many rooms. It has vessels. It has tools. It has storage compartments. It has a foundation. It has a cornerstone. It has pillars. And even within this house, it has workers. It is again called a holy priesthood. If you go back to the Old Testament, the the priesthood consisted, of course, of many different families, and each family had their own responsibilities to care for the tabernacle and later the temple of God. Some were responsible for offering sacrifices. Others were responsible for securing and covering the holy vessels of the tabernacle. Others were responsible for carrying those same vessels when the tabernacle was being moved. And and still others were responsible for guarding the temple so that no unauthorized individuals could enter. And the church in many ways is the same. It has many different parts. It has many different families. But each person is necessary for the whole. And that's what God is building in the church. If you remember when John the Baptist was rebuking the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the things that He said to them is that that they shouldn't be boasting in their own ethnic heritage that that God Himself is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. In a very real sense, that's what God is doing. He's, He's raising up stones and turning them into the children of Abraham. He takes once Dead stones. He takes dead, rebellious sinners and He breathes new life into them. He turns them into living stones. And then He looks at the temple that He's constructing and He he notices that there's a stone that's missing in the, the archway. And, and what does He do? He, he takes a, a new believer and He begins to chisel them so that they'll fit perfectly in that archway. He uses the process of sanctification and the discipline of the Lord to to conform us into the exact shape that He would have us so that He fits us perfectly into the house of God. God does not save us so that we can be a kind of rogue warrior and we can do our own thing. He saves us and He sanctifies us to form us into a certain kind of people. He forms us into a holy people who can fit into His holy house. But then last of all, I want you to see that as He forms us into a holy people, He does so not just so that we can sort of look around at each other and admire how beautiful we've all become in Christ. We don't just look around and say, yeah, you've become like gold. Ah, you're like jasper. Yeah, you're like an emerald. No, He forms us so that we will carry out certain responsibilities. He makes us into a priesthood so that we will do something. So that we will act. Again, Peter says at the end of verse 5 that he forms us into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. To offer sacrifices acceptable to God Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are in Christ, if you have believed in Jesus, you're trusting in Him, you are a priest. A priest is not a, a certain office in the Catholic Church. You are, by virtue of being joined to Christ, a priest and part of a holy priesthood you're a priest like many of the priests in the days of Israel. But if you are a priest who, who does nothing, if you are a priest who who receives commands, who receives instructions and, and you don't act on them, you become like the, the bad priest of ancient Israel. The wicked, the corrupt priest of ancient Israel. The ones who either offered false sacrifices to false gods or or some of whom had been so separated from the Word of God for so long that they had no idea that they actually had priestly duties. Who you are, if you are Christ, is a priest. And therefore, as a priest, you are called, as Peter says, to offer sacrifices. The question, of course, is what kind of sacrifices do we offer? And what are these spiritual sacrifices? We know that we don't offer the sacrifices of the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. The Lamb of God has been slain. Right? Once for all. The, the, the only true redeeming blood has been shed and, and all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament have reached their, their fulfillment and climax in Christ. We don't do that. Those are not the sacrifices we offer anymore. But what are they? I want to draw your attention to several examples that we find in the New Testament of the kinds of things that are considered priestly sacrifices. Notice just a little bit further down in chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says there, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. One of the descriptions that you have of the body of Christ there is again that you're a holy priesthood and your responsibility is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness. So you can think of Your efforts in evangelism and proclaiming the Gospel to the lost, The preaching and the teaching of the word, the, the calling of sinners to repentance, that is part of your priestly responsibilities. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, what we read earlier, Paul says there, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You don't use your bodies anymore for sin. You you don't present the members of your body to be used for the lust of the flesh. Your body belongs to God. And you use your body to carry out His will and to To do works of righteousness, to to give yourself over to be a slave of righteousness. That's also a a sacrifice given to the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 to 16, the writer of Hebrews says there, through him, that is through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. When we gather together and we worship and we praise His name, when we sing, this is part of our priestly duties. and We are to carry this out well, we are to give the Lord all of our hearts. We are to sing the praises of His names. And, and this is, again, this is part of our priestly duties. You can think all the way back to the, the Old Testament as well, when, when a certain family of, of the Levites was responsible for leading the choir, singing in the temple. Well, that's what we all do now. We're part of this priesthood who praises and gives thanks to God. And of course, the author of Hebrews speaks about how we take care of each other as well. When there are, when there are needs, when we extend a, a helping hand to one another. These also, these, these good deeds, indeed they are done in Christ, are offerings of sacrifice to the Lord. One last one Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 5, or 3 to 5. John describes there seeing an angel in the heavenly temple of God, and the angel is offering incense to God, and the incense is described as the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and it's incense of prayers, and then throws them. the earth, it's when that happens that God's judgment can come upon the earth. And what is being pictured there is that God is bringing His judgments, His, His righteous judgments against Godliness on the earth in response to the prayers of His people, the outcries of His people, many of whom, as the book of Revelation says, are Beheaded. It is a response to the prayers of His people. So that, that's another thing. Your prayers. These are, these are sacrifices. This is incense being offered to the Lord. It's to, to use the image of the Old Testament, it's a pleasing aroma to Him. As a holy priesthood, these are the, the kinds of things that we're called to offer God. Love for one another. Caring for one another. Prayers, praise, thanksgiving, preaching, evangelism. In a word, you could just say obedience. Obedience to His Word. These are sacrifices being offered to God. Our obedience and our lives live to the glory of God is what He requires of us as this new priesthood. And friends, this is no uh, this is no heavy burden. This is this is a great privilege and a high honor. Again, all of these, these works that we could name are the ones that I just named. These are not things that you do to become a priest. These are not things that you do to enter into the priesthood and to to gain the favor of God. These are things that you do now that you've become by the grace of God a born again believer and now part of this holy priesthood. These are privileges. An honor to be able to work in the temple of the Lord. You are now priest of God. And so the call to you and the call to me and to to all of us, is to, to live out this high calling, to, to see yourself in this light. This is who you are. You may work at a particular job. You're a, you're a husband. You're, you're a wife. You're a teacher. Whatever the case may be. But above all of that, you're a part of the priesthood. You're royalty. You conduct yourself in this world in light of that new status you have in Christ. And Peter says that as you do this, and as you do it coming to Jesus, you will grow up into that salvation that you've received in the Lord. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we are grateful that you have... Not only saved us from our sin, but you have made us and are making us into a new people, into a priesthood who follows the, the priesthood of Christ—that is, after the order of Melchizedek, a priesthood separate of the Levites, but a priesthood that nevertheless offers spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to you. And Lord, I pray that as we all seek to to heed your commands and to conform our, our lives to them as we, as we obey, Lord, the task that you have given us to do as your holy priests, that this would be the means that you use to make us more like Jesus, that we would all grow up into this great salvation that we have received in his name. And I pray this all in Jesus' name.